You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. We are always live, always the show of ideas, never once the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. My goodness, do I have a treat for you. Do we have a treat for you. This morning's guest will give us something that I don't recall ever getting with the quality that you're about to hear, a inside, first-hand look at the operation of one of the more unusual White Houses in American history. I say unusual not as a judgmental uh, comment at all, but simply as a matter of fact. And I don't think that will be disputed when you have somebody in the White House who had never once before held elected office. Uh, uh, things are bound to be a little bit unusual, but in this case, they were a lot unusual, as you will learn. This morning, you will get first-hand views of some larger-than-life figures who have been on the news almost every night. Besides the president, you will learn about Peter Navarro, uh, Bolton, Bernie Sanders, of course, Jeb Bush, and many others. This morning's guest is Casey Mulligan. Casey served as the chief economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors for a full year between 2018 and 2019. Uh, Casey has just published a book that has been called Riveting, among other accurate and complimentary observations. His book is entitled You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President, President Donald Trump. Uh, Casey will share with us what he observed, what he learned, uh, his opinions on President Trump, on the policies, how these policies were formed, and will give us an inside look of what it's like to be in the Oval Office, in the White House, uh, during the tenure of a populist president, one of the few we have had in our history. Casey, thank you for joining us this morning, and welcome to the show. Well, it's my pleasure. I wish everyone could get to meet the president. It's my pleasure to explain to people what it's like. Now, uh, you you served as the chief economist in a group uh, called the Council of Economic Advisors, part of the, of course, executive branch uh, of the White House. Uh, and you were, this is a position you were asked to serve in. You got a phone call. Um, you were invited to join, and you, of course, accepted. Now, uh, and you served for a year. That was your term. And then back you went to teach at the University of Chicago, where you now teach. Now, just... Opening question, uh, if you had got, when you offered to serve, accepted the invitation to serve, is it the kind of position that you would have accepted because the position itself 
is so interesting and it gives you insights, a chance to learn and a chance to uh, encourage others to, to adopt policies that you believe correct. That is, would you have accepted the call from any president, any administration who called because the job is so darn good, or did you, would you have declined others and did you accept the offer of this president, and if so, was there a reason? Yeah, the, the position is a, is a great opportunity uh, to serve and to learn. Um, the Bush administration twice had approached me about essentially this position, um, and, I, and I took them seriously for the exactly the reasons you mentioned. But, but it didn't pan out. Um, an important issue was, you know, did my talents, I, there's a lot of talents I don't have, did my talents fit with what President Bush was trying to do, and, and they really didn't. Um, and when the Trump administration called, that, that match was a lot better. Um, I had written some books, for example, on President Obama's major policies that the President Trump was trying to reverse, and yeah, so I had a lot of expertise on how, how we, we could do better than what President Obama had done. Uh, give us a little bit of insight, if you would. Um, what specifically was there about um, the invitation from Trump, uh, the Trump administration, that made it appealing? What uh, policies specifically got you excited uh, and so energized to join the administration? I would say initially it was uh, Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act. You know, the president promised his voters that he would repeal that. And when that failed, that he would try to clean it up a lot, uh, make it better. And since I had, that was my most recent book at the time, that, that was very attractive. And it turns out that, that was maybe 10 to 20 percent of my time. Um, and working on a lot of other things were even more interesting, but I didn't know those were coming down, down the pike. Now, in your, in your book, uh, you offer wonderful insights and they're wonderful they are firsthand they are candid uh, you don't you it's clear to me um from reviewing the book that you didn't have an agenda you were just sharing what you had learned with the with the reading public and you do so quite beautifully if not brilliantly uh when you were there when you when you were serving as the chief economist, were you then intending to write a book and taking notes accordingly so your notes would serve you in the book writing, or did it occur to you after the experience that that was experience was something you could share with the public and the public would get would be interested and get a benefit? It's kind of in between. After I arrived, I realized that there was a niche there, an opportunity if you will, again, where, where my talents and situation fit in. I mean, I knew going in there, I knew from studying Obamacare that what you read in the press is often quite untrue. And going there, all I knew about the Trump White House in terms of the day-to-day -day workings was what I read in the press, which I knew was wrong. But then where, what am I going into? I have no information, right? I have information that pretends to be information, but I knew that I didn't have real information. So I was fearful. Um, and then when I got there, I got to see what it's like, and I realized, you know, there's a need for somebody to tell about what it's really like. Um, and I, I've written books before, so as, as time went on, I started 
yeah, having better and better notes and thinking about a book um, and how it would be organized. Although ultimately, when I got out and reflected backward, I ended up reorganizing everything. Um, I realized the populist part, which was not part of my education or thinking going in there, was really essential to understanding, you know, how the president operates and and how his uh, staff, you know, works for him. We're going to spend a lot of time, most of our time during this hour, talking about specific policy issues, how the president approached them, um, what conclusions he reached, and as your book title indicates, successes and failures. Before we roll up our sleeves and get into policy, one question I was really looking forward to asking you. So you had never met the president, I presume, uh, before, uh, at in one-on-one, uh, before you went to Washington. Is that is that correct? That's right. And so tell us if you would, if you can recall, I'm sure that you can, you're, you had, I guess, more than one, either one-on-one meetings with the president or in a very small group where you really could get a sense of the president, either in, a, in, a one-on, in the first one-on-one meeting or very small group, a working meeting. Tell us about what you thought you would experience and what you actually experienced in that close-up and personal, as they say, experience with the president. He, uh, yeah, the, the, all the meetings were in a small group, and, they have, uh, and I have some pictures in, in the book to show how it works, but the typical Oval Office meeting, there's a handful of chairs um, around the president's desk with the with the guests for the meeting are sitting them. Um, in my meetings, we did not have press in, in the room, um, but maybe the, the viewers have or the listeners have heard or seen pictures like when Kanye was in the Oval Office. It was the same setup. There were four or five chairs for Kanye and his folks, um, and that that's the that's the type of meetings that that transpired. Um, and the first time that I. Uh, met him was to review the economic report of the president was talking about how the economy had done in the past year and how that fit or didn't fit with his policy goals. Um, and that was, that was a whole set of experiences. He, he covers a lot of ground in a short period of time, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so that uh, I was a bit in amazement at, at the man. That was kind of my first reaction um, and I actually give the analogy in the book the first time I ever went to a Bears game. I've been a Bears fan my whole life, but I was fairly old when I went to my first Bears game in person, Chicago Bears. They were playing uh, Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions. And I was really amazement of Barry Sanders at the time. He ran around our Bears like they were children. And I could re- really appreciate it, Barry Sanders. I don't know if he's the best football player or other. I couldn't say that that day, but I could say that, wow, his – his talents are at another level of everyone in, in the building and of his competitors. And that's kind of the reaction I had uh, to President Trump, that his, his talents are another level. I can't say he's the best president ever. Maybe he is, but he's, I feel sorry for his competition. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's a tough talent to, to go against. Um, and then, Does Trump, uh, I'm sorry, please, please continue. So, I, so that was kind of the, a lot of the meeting, just me being in amazement. Um, and at the end of the meeting, we actually brought in a bunch more people for a picture, which is unusual. So we had, I think, 
40 people in the Oval Office at the end. And then he pulled me aside in front of all of them and, and said, how are you doing? You know, how's, it, how's the job going here? He made me feel like he'd known me forever, which I, I knew wasn't true, but I still felt it. Um, and, and he's just a, a good retail politician. He, he knows how to put people in his presence and make them feel good. And it was totally opposite experience I had when I met Jeb Bush uh, when Jeb was on the 2016 campaign trail. Um, maybe that's why Jeb lost. He's not, he, Jeb did not make the people around him feel good. And certainly I didn't feel good when I was with Jeb. So that, that's the opposite of what you hear in the news. In fact, I remember New York Times ran a couple stories about how Jeb Bush, if anything else, Jeb was brought up by Barbara Bush, who taught him to be kind and polite and a nice person. And then Trump, of course, is a mean person. But that is the exact opposite of my personal experience. And I will mention to our listeners that, you, as I said in my introduction, your description of the many larger-than-life characters, I, I don't mean to be snide, characters in the book, uh, Navarro and Bolton and Bernie Sanders, we'll get to Bernie Sanders, I hope during the hour, uh, and Jeb Bush are are wonderfully, they're, they're, they seem to be fair, uh, you have given thought to how you share your experiences with them, and if our re- listeners and your readers are at all interested in putting learning about in addition to policy, because the book is replete with, with wonderful policy analysis. But if you want more than policy, this is the book. The description of the players in Washington is so unusual for a book of this type. Uh, and a, that makes the book a good read in and of itself. Now, before we get into economic policy, of course, which is why um, a lot of what's in your book, uh, and since we have, since it's so much identified with President Trump, and because your book offers lots of insights, share with us, if you will, the tr- Trump's relationship to Twitter. Uh, now, Trump, um, many people, certainly the ruling class, and Casey will, of course, discuss your discussion of the ruling class, what it means, and the dynamics during this hour. But Trump's relationship to Twitter, that itself is extraordinarily unusual. It's unusual, of course, for the style, which many people find boorish and certainly politically incorrect. That goes without saying. Kind of strange. Often um, he makes statements that don't appear to be defensible, and you will help us understand that they're not supposed to be fact-based. So tell us, if you will, in a few minutes, Trump and Twitter, why the president does it, uh, whether it accomplishes his goals, what's that all about, only because it is so unusual. One of my favorite uh, things I learned there, um, he My second chapter is called, I Wish He Would Stay Off Twitter, which I think most Trump voters have said to themselves more than a couple times in the last three and a half years. And actually, a lot of the White House staff says that to themselves and to each other. Um, And I think you need to drill down to the foundation here, which is he's a populist president, meaning he was won the election because of support outside of Washington, outside of both parties, the, 
Washington is a bipartisan place in the sense that it has Democrats and Republicans who have those Washington resumes. And he wanted and promised and said that he was going to reverse some of the failed, what he considered and his voters considered failed policies. And they're invested in that. They didn't want that. And they're smart people, and they can fight back. Um, and, you know, they, they're run or heavily employed by TV and newspapers. So he needed his own network. I mean, that, that, that was a necessity if you're going to be a populist president. Maybe that's why we haven't had many in history, as you, as you mentioned. Um, and Twitter, Twitter was his own network. He could go directly to the people. Um, and until recently when Twitter started putting some, some labels on his tweets, it, it, it was un, unfiltered by um, his political opponents. And, you know, you, you don't just have a network and people watch. You, you need to give them a reason to watch. Um, and so he, he's been successful at that. He's, at the time, wrote the book. He had 70 million followers. Now he's got 80 million his stuff gets retweeted. It gets replayed on on standard news channels and newspapers. Um, I, I have some estimates in the books. Um, something like 200 million people say they frequently are hear of what he tweets, um, which is way more people than uh, would watch a Super Bowl in, in the United States. It's it, it's been very successful. But and and he understands that to have a network, you have to have people give people a reason that. Tune in so that's some of the some of the bizarre and bombastic stuff um, gets people tuning in. Um, and he understands things are the, the, the world is involves a trade, so he's going to get people to tune in. He's going to get NBC to mention what he said. NBC's got to get something out of it, and so maybe they get to call him uh, a, a name or call him inconsiderate or, or worse. Um, and he views that trade as being worth it for having his own network where he can reach the, the people directly. Um, another thing he, he does on, on the Twitter, sometimes I, I, I explain a particular episode in the book that's fairly typical. Um, he'll think about, you know, we have something happened in our country that's important. How much do I need to exaggerate it so that the press covers it? Um, and he'll talk about that and think about that. Um, one of the, the the one I tell in the book was with some GDP numbers, which had exceeded expectations. You know, when the Obama people were exiting the White House, they said, you know, our economy can't grow more than one or two percent, um, and we we were coming in way way ahead of that. And the press wasn't covering it. They that are the things they were talking about. And he turned to us, econ guys, and said, well. What do I need to say about these GDP numbers so that the press will cover it? You know, do I should I say it's the best? It was the best in 12 years. Should I say it's the best in 20? The best in 50? Should I say the best ever? You know, what should I say to get them to cover it? Um, so he, he clearly he viewed this as a trade that the press gets to call him a, a liar, but then they have to talk about um, the issue that he thinks is not a part of the conversation and needs to be, um, such as how well the economy was growing at that time, or he'll say things like, I'm the best uh, president for African-Americans ever, or since Lincoln. And then, of course, there'll be a fact check by the Washington Post. He'll say, well, no, he's not. Maybe he, he's done some good things for the African-Americans, but maybe Lyndon Johnson was better. <laughs> and, then it, and 
that that's the trade that they got to call him a liar and give him Pinocchios, but they had to talk about some of the things, the policies that he did for African Americans. Now, in the case of the GDP one, we had this conversation about how much to exaggerate, but in the end, he didn't exaggerate it. He he told Dan Scavino, um, by the way, who, who runs the Twitter, the president's not sitting on the couch in the middle of the night to, to typing on his own phone. Um, the, he has people who handle these. You know, he's the inspiration for sure. He said, Dan, you know, just take what the Council of Economic Advisors has typed up here and put it exactly into the tweet. Take out the chart, put the exact words, and we'll see how that plays out. And if it doesn't get enough tension, then then maybe we'll exaggerate it. So that's exaggeration is uh, one one of the methods that that he uses to kind of have that trade. He um, and go ahead. And Casey, that's a that's a perfect example of what you do throughout your book. Uh, which makes the book such an easy and pleasant and informative read. And that is that America, the country, me included, would look at those Twitters, those tweets, and say, this is an example of no impulse control. It's all impulsive. And you explain, no, it's quite the opposite. It's carefully thought through. Whether or not it's a sensible strategy, that's not the conversation. What it is not, it is not just some impulse, middle of the night, wake up, have a drink of water, and send out a tweet. It's carefully thought through to accomplish a goal. We're not going to have a conversation whether it achieves the goal. It probably does based upon the goal that you have described. But it's the kind of insight that the country really benefits from. And so those those examples in the book are just wonderful and my compliments. Now, uh, getting over to policy a bit, uh, there are certain, and during your tenure at the Council of Economic Advisors and before you got there and after you left, economic issues have, as they always are, front and center of the measure of a successful administration. And some of the very large and so obvious that you just I just have to say a few syllables, issues like trade and immigration, uh, which are have been big deals. Now, they are more than just economic issues, but they really are profoundly economic issues. Um, that's the major thrust. Does the president have a governing philosophy when he approaches these issues and the others we hopefully will have time to talk about. Is there, are there a set of core values of, uh, for example, um, the importance of economic freedom, uh, federalism issues of move policy down from the feds to the states? Are there certain consistent governmental policies um, that throughout the, your experience there, that can help us American voters sort of understand more what, what dictates how the president will make decisions? Or is it more pragmatic? Pragmatic not being a bad term, just a different term, where you look at every issue, no governing philosophy, and you just decide what's the best decision for this particular problem. 
I just uh, I, I push back a little bit on the term philosophy. I mean, he, he, I, we're not calling it ideologue. It's not like he read Ayn Rand and said, uh, the, the, I understand the world now, and this is how I'm going to organize uh, what I do. Um, he's more empirical. He's, he's not a young person. He's been around a lot of years, um, and he, he continued to learn while he was in the White House, and he, he sees patterns that that work. And so then he'll reapply those patterns. So it's not on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, the, the idea of federalism, that you know maybe things are better handled at a local level where the information and maybe incentives are better. Um, you could get that from a philosophical point of view or a theoretical point of view. But he, he I think, arrived at things like that from a more practical point of view, seen it enough times where it worked, and when somebody wasn't doing federalism, it didn't work, and and so he would be willing to apply that. Uh, in fact, that particular one, I think he he's really increasingly grown attracted to that approach. And there are a few times people ask me, oh, you know, I'm going to be in the Oval Office, and I argue my position. And I said, you know, your position can be given that federalist, federalism angle, which I think the president appreciates, and they they did that, um, and... I think they were successful. Whether that I wasn't at those meetings, but for example, one a very recent one about their uh, Ben Carson's agency's um, regulations around zoning in suburbs. Um, there was a battle in the administration about that, and my advice to some of those going into that battle was, you know, remind them of how federalism can work and has worked. That maybe the, the localities. Have better uh, better information and better incentives to what's going on with really the people. And yeah, Ben Carson's agency is not going to want to surrender power because they're the opposite. They want the power in Washington, um, but that hasn't worked so well on so many issues, and maybe it's not going to work well here. Um, in the end, that carried the day that President wiped out um, the those agencies' regulations that had been in place since the Obama uh, administration. Trump's one of one of the complaints about Trump's policy making is that he vacillates, he changes his mind, he is not consistent. You explain in the book that that again is a function of something that the public doesn't know about, which is the use of experimentation in policy making which to me was an eye-opener. Tell us about uh, how President Trump does or does not use experimentation, and maybe with an example, and to show the result of that way of policymaking, rather than a decision-maker who is committed to a certain point of view and will hold on to it, hell or high water. So tell us about, because you mentioned it a lot in your book, it was fascinating, about Trump and the use of experimentation. Yeah, he's very much an experimenter, which is my phrase. I mean, coming from, you know, the academic world, that's that's what we call it. Uh, I believe business people call it fast failure. Um, but in any case, it's, it's pretty novel. Um, in the political sphere. In fact, I, I think one of the pres- things the president maybe gets a little bit wrong is he, he sometimes assumes that other politicians 
operate that way, and they really don't. <laughs> um, um, but certainly that's the way he operates. Um, he, again, not being an ideologue, it maybe gives him the freedom to do that. He, say, try something. You know, we have some, in, maybe many, at least some intractable problems that previous presidents haven't been able to budge on. How are we going to solve it? Well, you know, you could formulate a new theory from the ground up and use that, or maybe just try something and see how it works. And if it works, you stay with it. If it doesn't work, you get rid of it. Um, and that, that's been his uh, approach. I, I, I suspected, I sense that he got that, you know, he had a life before he was in the White House. That that's something he had learned throughout his life, and he rather perfected it pretty well. And he, uh, one example I give in the book was this, with the individual mandate, the requirement in Obamacare that everybody buy, has to buy health insurance. And the experts, um, most of them have said, yeah, we need to do that, otherwise people won't sign up until they're sick, and that will raise the prices, and then the people won't buy, and there won't be a market for health insurance, and that the terrible death spiral you get if you don't force people to buy health insurance. And so his first approach was, okay, I, I hear the experts tell me that. Oh, I'm going to try, try that out and see this is more a political experiment. And he tried on the campaign trail a couple days, and he was hearing from a lot of people that there weren't experts and some pretty compelling arguments against. And, and so he changed something like six or seven days. He changed 180 degrees and was saying that the individual mandate is one of the worst policies ever, um, and he's going to get rid of it. And he did get rid of it, and he still brags to this day. Probably today he will again brag about how he got rid of the individual mandate, um, which I guess candidate Biden wants to bring back. And, and that, was, that was his experiment. And then, you know, I, I had a book about Obamacare which discussed the individual mandate a little bit, but I didn't totally understand it myself. I did not give the party line that you have to have it and so on. Um, but when, once I was brought on board with his administration, I had to, was one of my assignments is you, you got to give some serious thought to this individual mandate. What are its costs? What are its benefits? And as we thought through it, we realized, you know, this individual mandate doesn't make sense. So the, the experts were actually wrong um, about this, that the, what you're doing is you're punishing somebody who doesn't buy subsidized health insurance, who turns down government assistance. Shouldn't we send a thank you note to people who turned down government assistance? Why are we punishing them? Um, and the experts had kind of failed to think about, when they think about the individual mandate, to realize that, you know, so much health insurance is subsidized. And maybe it would make sense in a world where you didn't have subsidized health insurance, but that's not our world. That's not the Obamacare world. And so really getting rid of the individual mandate was a huge gain for consumers and taxpayers, um, kind of a double whammy there, and there's a good reason he brags about it in terms of economics. Um, and I'll leave it to him, but he says it was a great political move, too, that a lot of people, even Obama, privately acknowledged to, to his, uh, some of his people, you know, maybe the individual mandate was a big political mistake of ours if we, we could do it over again. And he discovered it literally he- in a few days by experimenting. It was not only not only a bad political mistake, a bad economic mistake as well. Um, as a uh, as a libertarian, as one who 
er, who yearns for totally free markets so that the price mechanism of free markets tell, helps us understand what goods and services are really worth. Uh, I found myself quite pained um, with Trump uh, identifying himself, I think it was a self-identifier, as the tariff man. So tariffs have been a big deal throughout the Trump first term. Um, I have been kind of pained that he's been interfering with the free market. Why would he tax American consumers, which is what he ends up doing, merely for the because of their choice of wanting to buy something made in a foreign country. After all, aren't I allowed to buy whatever I want to buy? So the whole area of tariffs is kind of painful to me in terms of Trump's policy. Help us understand, and that's the and I of course yearn for President Reagan. He is he is one of my heroes in American history. And uh, you help me understand in the book that, well, my uh, whatever I may think about President Reagan, and it's passionate, um, my views of his uh, approach to foreign trade are kind of misplaced a bit. So help me understand, help us, the listeners, understand Trump's approach to tariffs foreign trade, uh, buying goods manufactured overseas, and what his, what he sees to be the ultimate goal of his policy, and whether or not he achieves it. Yeah, I have a, uh, my, my book has a social media bibliography, so links to videos and tweets and stuff, and one of them is a link to a Ronald Reagan video talking about the virtues of free international trade. It is an awesome video. It'll bring tears to your eyes. Ronald Reagan can explain probably better than anyone, including Milton Friedman, why free international trade is a good thing. Um, but that's not what he practiced. Um, there, and, and this really goes for all the presidents in between and before Reagan. <clears throat> there are special interests in Washington that get served. Um, I wish they didn't, but they they do get served. You know, the steel companies, the perennially served by special favors, the car companies served by special favors, <clears throat> and Ronald Reagan was serving them up just as well as uh, other presidents have. And what, what Ronald Reagan used <clears throat> at, the, excuse me, at the time was uh, mainly a quota arrangement, saying to the Japanese car companies, for example, there's only so many cars you can send over here. So you guys figure out which cars you're going to send, but there's going to be a limit on how many cars. The Japanese companies love that because then they didn't compete with each other for space in our market. In fact, after I'd written that chapter and sent it around to some of the Reagan people, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, the Japanese companies would come to the White House during the Reagan years and ask for a quota. So what does the quota do? Yeah, the American car companies love it because that keeps out competition. Um, the consumer of American automo of automobiles in America has to pay more. But who do they pay more to? They pay more to the Japanese companies, um, also to the American companies. President Trump did very few quotas. Um, he did tariffs instead. So he would put a tariff on imported goods. And, yeah, the consumer would pay more. The domestic producer was happy. They're the special interests that are getting served. Um, but at least the money didn't go to the Chinese companies. It went in our treasury. And that, that would be... An improvement, I would say. Um, 
and I think Milton Friedman wrote in the Wall Street Journal a few times in the 80s at the same point. He, he didn't know Trump was coming, but he was saying Reagan is so bad with these quotas that it'd actually be an improvement to have a tariff man, and we have our tariff man. So that, that's one, uh, one thing to recognize. Um, they were both dealing now, with... Now, yeah. one question, if I can, just um, both Reagan's quota policy and Trump's tariff policy have the effect of increasing the cost to the consumer. Both have the same effect. Why didn't either, and you go, I know what your answer is going to be, as my listeners probably do, but I just want to hear it. Um, why isn't there a third choice, which is neither quota nor tariffs, result being consumers pay less, result being some manufacturing is now done overseas because there's a comparative advantage, an economic principle we know about, of course. Uh, why isn't that the choice? Is it simply that it's political reality that the car companies have so much power, they will end up being protected, and the only issue is in which way do you protect them, albeit at the expense of the consumer? Yeah, there would be no tariffs. If you had this swamp totally drained, to use the president's metaphor, there would be no tariffs. But the swamp isn't drained, and there are interests that have to be served. Uh, need I remind people that um, Mrs. Clinton didn't campaign in Michigan where the car companies are? You know, the car, car companies have been a powerful interest. Ronald Reagan made them many promises and delivered on those promises. So he... Yeah, and that's some of the failures in the book, that the president has not totally drained the strong. There are still special interests that, that get these favors, and the uh, interfering with international trade has been a common way to, to deliver those favors. Now, also, and it was true then, it was true now, there also is the intellectual property problem around the world. In Reagan's day, the problem was, the Japanese weren't expecting, uh, respecting our copyrights and other intellectual properties, and other Asian, East Asian tigers weren't. And, you know, what's he going to do about that? You know, we don't use the military to go solve that problem, so what are we going to do? Reagan threatened tariffs. Um, he, he, he didn't do so many of those, but he threatened them. And it took him a number of years. Eventually, in his second term, he got some trade deals with Japan and, and Asian tigers to respect our uh, intellectual property rights. And we have the same time issue now, although it's not called Japan, it's called China, but the same sort of issues have arrived and arise, risen and tariffs um, are, are, are being used. Um, maybe the one thing is different. There were some economists, even Chicago trained economists back in the Reagan years who recommended that tariffs maybe be something we use to to change that behavior. Um, no economists recommend that. Now, I'm not sure what changed in, the, in terms of professional analysis because Adam Smith was still known to all of us. But anyway, um, those are kind of the, the two issues. You have a special interest to serve, and then you do have this intellectual property, which is an important industry here, uh, here in America. What is the, what is the principle, uh, the core principle that governs um, President Trump's immigration policy, another policy that I um, I find painful, uh, 
to use the first word that comes to mind, painful because, um, Iris, and I'll ask you to speak to the economic issues, but just to mention in passing, the issue that doesn't get discussed, and maybe it just doesn't have a lot of traction, is that my view is people in this world have a an inherent natural right to travel, to improve their lives, and that right, that per- right which is personal to the immigrant, we ought not be interfered with. They should be allowed to come here. So that's that's like my starting point. But speaking to the policy, the uh, good for the country, bad for the country, good or bad, why, tell us what dictates uh, President Trump's immigration policy and your own views, which you express uh, very persuasively in the in your book about immigration policy, because people, it appears somewhat cruel, is that too strong a word, somewhat thoughtless. Um, there's a lot of bad labels that are put on it. Help us understand what drives the policy decisions on immigration and whether in your view, the administration has achieved their policy objectives? Sure. Well, in immigration, I'd say there are two areas. One would be more in a legal area, which would not be my expertise. You know, the issue that, that the laws are broken, they're not enforced, you know, they're selectively enforced. You know, there's a whole set of issues that the president is passionate about and people are passionate about that I don't have much expertise uh, um, I did notice, you know, a typical pattern. In some of those areas, they would just do the same thing the Obama administration did and then get criticized like crazy, even though Obama was allowed to do them. Like, to recognize the idea that, you know, if we give special treatment to children at the border, then we're going to have more people carrying children up to the southern border. This is something that Obama people recognize, which I think is true. But when uh, Trump people recognize it, they, they were considered cruel. Um, the area that we worked on in the Council of Economic Advisors is he he asked us, and in conjunction with others in the White House, to come up with a plan that he could call his own immigration plan. What would the immigration laws look like if we did them right? That that's the project he, that he gave us. You know, we're heavily empirical, so one thing we had to do um, and gladly did was disassemble some, a data set. And well, what are the immigration laws around the country? How are they working out? Um, around the world, I'm sorry, what are other countries, what are they doing? If, if they do it better than us, are there things we can learn? So we did that. Um, and we would show the president these, some of these findings. And one of the things he volunteered, he said, you know, he said, hey, citizenship's our most precious commodity. We ought to be selling it. We ought to get money for that. He said privately. He knew you don't say that in public. And I was really taken aback by that because that's exactly what Gary Becker, uh, the Chicago economist, Nobel Prize, maybe the smartest of, of all those with Nobel Prizes, I might say he wrote a book about called Immigration, a Radical uh, Proposal. And his Becker's proposal is let's charge for citizenship. And the reason he was willing to consider different than your natural rights view, Bob, was that, you know, we have these welfare systems. Um, and so it might not make sense to let people free for where they want when welfare 
benefits are going to be part of those decisions. So he said, well, maybe we should have a charge at, at the border. <clears throat> and the president derived that on his own. We, we did not give him Becker's book and, or discuss it with him. He, he came up with that on his own, um, which kind of gave me an insight in terms of his capability to think like an economist, at least to think like a Gary Becker economist, and he was, he was able to do that. And it, what did he, he end up being excited about were some of the international systems that kind of mimic that without coming out and having a fee, <clears throat> point-based systems like in Australia and in Canada, that, where the points are based on economic contributions. And we kind of understood, well, that maybe help approximate the radical Becker model in the sense that if you had a fee at the border, the people who would pay the fee are the ones who have the most to gain when they come here. Um, and maybe if, if you could try to mimic that with the point system, you never get exactly because, of course, prices are better than than regulations and planning. But that, that's the idea of the point system. And so he put together a, a regulation reform package that is essentially the Australian and Canada point-based systems based on economic contribution. That's what would decide who would uh, what applications would be accepted versus rejected to come in our our country now, of course, and we all we all knew this from the beginning. Uh, Pelosi's never going to sign on to any immigration reform package that the White House put together. Um, but he at least wanted to be able to say what his principles are and what how much better things could be if, if there were a cooperative Congress on this issue. We're we're running out of time, and do you have some interesting observations about Trump's relationship with? observations about interactions with um, Bernie Sanders, another larger-than-life figure. Is there an anecdote or a story, kind of a teaser, it shows uh, the style of writing and the quality of the content in the book about uh, Trump, I'll say Trump and Bernie Sanders? You know, there are Bernie Sanders is also a populist. He's not going to be a president, but he's a, he's a populist. And I could tell that the president really appreciated that and, yeah, and paid attention to it. Not only you – know, there's also the defensive point of view that, you know, maybe Sanders would get some of his populist uh, support and siphon that away, but also could he learn from it um, that – because Bernie Sanders, to some extent, especially when I was there, seemed like an outsider. Now, now he seems much less like an outsider than than he seemed at the time. Um, and actually, it's interesting that the president is aware of a lot of elections for president and primaries and Senate primaries, and he has a lot of these in his head that he's thinking through. Um, and one of the things he one he thinks about is the caucus versus. Um, H.W. Bush, and which is actually today seems very interesting analogy because remember H.W. made a uh, comeback in the summer, um, which is President Trump may be doing right now, and he was thinking about that election and thinking about you know would Bernie Sanders be a uh, Dukakis type of character, <clears throat> and he he told us the story or retold the story about. Dukakis wearing that army helmet sitting in the tank and how foolish that was. And, you know, yeah, he and he looked that, like the chipmunk. He looked like the yeah. chipmunk. <laughs> and he thought that that's the type of mistake that Bernie Sanders would make as well in a campaign. 
So that we were amused by that, but I think that's insightful too. It's not my area, but I thought it insightful. The, the last topic, the last topic I'd like to try to cover. We only have a minute or so, regretfully, but uh, what will be an issue in the campaign, a big issue, is the president's handling or not handling of the COVID epidemic. Uh, now, you are, clear, of course, not a, not a medical doctor, you're an economist. So keep your observations, of course, to the economic issue. How much should that be an issue in the campaign? And if so, how should, how should the voters, from an economic standpoint, evaluate what Trump did or didn't do uh, with respect to the virus? And uh, we, we have only a couple of minutes. Well, no, it is very important. I think if people want to put weight on that, I totally understand that. It, from a lot of perspectives, it overwhelms pretty much any any other policy area that many presidents in the past would have dealt with. So uh, it, it is it is interesting. Now, it, it turns out my counsel actually had a couple medical doctors as part of it who also had econ degrees, and we actually worked on pandemics before this. We knew anything about this pandemic. We worked on pandemics, and President was excited about that. And, uh, and the thing that we emphasized in our report, which came out in September, we worked on it a couple of years, is innovation. If you're going to have a pandemic, innovation, we can help prevent its cost from getting too far into the trillions. And we we talked about how, you know, it's, you want to you want to get the FDA out of the way in terms of testing and having a vaccine, discovering a vaccine. Also, you, you need to be able to manufacture that vaccine on a uh, large scale, you know, a massive scale. Um, there are some vaccine technologies that don't allow that. Um, and that was our recommendation in that report. And the president took that recommendation. Casey, I just want to, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to cut you short, but um, in your opinion, were you happy with the economic aspects of the handling of the pandemic or not? We have about 30 seconds. Yeah, I think the warp policy, which came from that report, is very impressive. Um, now, we got to get a vaccine to, in hindsight, say it was worth it, but it was a very, very good bet. Uh, arguably, expected return on that, on that warp speed program is 50,000% or something like that. It was, uh, and it oh followed straight from the economics that we had carefully worked out. Casey Mulligan has written, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. It is a must-read for anybody who is interested in politics, interested in economics, wants to understand how our country really works, and wants firsthand observations about many of the people we see on the news every evening in politics. It is a must-read, um, especially before an election. What you will learn in the book is so different than what you learn from mainstream media. You cannot participate in the political process without reading this book. It is compelling and riveting. Casey, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I wish that we had more time. Uh, thank you for your service in the Council of Economic Advisors and for making our country a bit greater again. Thank you so much to Casey. Thank you to my listeners. I'll be back again next Sunday. Have a good balance of the weekend.